0: We thank you, Father, for this glorious um, word, your word to the Hebrews, which is also a word to us. And we ask, Lord, as we finish studying this book today, we ask that you would open our minds, open our hearts to you, um, that we would draw near to you in faith, and that um, we would draw near to you in faith because of your son, Jesus Christ, and his one full, perfect, sufficient uh, sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction. We thank you for him. We thank you for the way that you made for us uh, into the most holy place, into fellowship with you. So we give you thanks, and we ask now that you would use this time for your glory and for our benefit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, again, Gil, I just loved that he used um, those words from our our communion liturgy to talk about the previous passage in Hebrews. So for those of you, uh, how many were there last week and were able to, oh, good. Okay, so... Um, and so you kind of got a summary from the book of Hebrews that basically this letter is a letter that could best be described as a word of exhortation. That's what the writer uses in our, one of our, one of the long passages from today. He says, um, at the very end, he says this word of exhortation in the whole 13 chapters could be described as a word of exhortation, like a long sermon. Because there's so much theological content in it. He doesn't take very many bunny trails. He doesn't start talking about ethical exhortation, ethical behavior until now, until just now at the very end of the book. He, um, he has one main argument that goes the whole way. And remember, again, for those of you, um, you'll recall that we don't know who this author is. He's an anonymous author, and many people have... Um, hypothesized who it might have been and we just frankly don't know. So we just don't know who it is. Um, it probably was not Paul but I think the best theory is that it was Barnabas um, because it was clearly someone who knew Timothy and we'll see that in this passage at the end. He mentions Timothy. Someone who um, was was in, understood Christian theology, understood um, what Jesus's death meant um, and also was very likely to have been with Paul and yet has a different take on it very very much heightens um, his understanding of what, what it is that Jesus has done on the cross. He understands that primarily through the lens of sacrifice and the sacrifice particularly that was made known to the Hebrew people in the temple and before that in the tabernacle. And so again remember that his argument is um, that just as this was a great thing, so much more, Jesus Jesus is so much greater. And we looked at that early on, that um, just as angels are glorious, while well, Jesus is even more glorious. Just as Moses was a mediator of a covenant, he was a faithful servant in God's house, well, Jesus was faithful over all God's house as a son, not as a servant. So just as Moses was great, well, Jesus is even greater. And then he talks about the Aaronic priesthood, those Levitical priests, following after their father Aaron, who were set apart and consecrated to offer sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people of Israel over and over and over again. Remember, they had to keep on offering those sacrifices. And the author's argument is that Jesus, once and for all, has offered his own self. Well, first of all, he is a priest forever. Again, after a different order, not out of the Levitical order, but out of the order of Melchizedek, who was a king and a priest um and he lives on forever because he was raised from the dead Jesus does and he um lives his work is finished and completed because he has sat down in heaven at the right hand of the Father, so we know his work is done, Um, unlike those, and the writer even says, unlike those Levitical priests who stand continually offering sacrifices, that those sacrifices are not enough to atone for the sins of the world, but rather Jesus' once and for all sacrifice has completed the job, it is finished, and by his blood, his blood seals the new covenant for those who believe in him, the covenant with God, um, and that um, his blood and en- allows us to enter through the curtain into the most holy place remember how um, I described the holy place and the most holy place in the temple in the tabernacle was kind of like this bullseye, these concentric circles of holiness that the closer you get to the most holy place that is where God's presence was palpably known and in the tabernacle you can tell it talks about in the Pentateuch that when Moses went to talk with God there was this huge cloud and this weighty presence God's presence, his holiness was palpably felt and we'll look at that just a little bit in one of the parts from one of the chapters today that um, they talk about the mountain, Mount Sinai, where um, the voice of God was so much, so much for the people to bear that they said, don't he, we don't want him to speak to us anymore. We can't bear it for God to speak to us. We need you to intercede for us, Moses. We need you to be the one to hear the message from God and then relay it to us. Well, um, again, the author looks at that and says, even as, so much, even as that was too much for the people to bear, so much so now on this new mountain, we have these new words from Christ, our once and for all mediator. Um, so any questions about that before we delve into this passage um, for today? I any mean, thoughts that you might have had in the in the passing week or weeks since we have started to look at this book? Okay well remember that the one argument, so the argument that this author is making is that Jesus is greater, Jesus is better because of this once and for all sacrifice. Well why was he making this argument? Do you remember what what was happening with the people that he was speaking to originally that made this argument necessary? Falling away from the, the proper way of thinking. That's right. They were falling away, not just from the proper way. Yes, definitely from the proper way of thinking. They were tempted to no longer believe in Jesus. Remember that we talked about falling away, not as, you know, I had a bad today, day today. I yelled at my wife or I um, I really messed up on this. I, I, I messed up and I sinned in this and this and this way you know if we confess our sins at the end of the day we look back on the day and think oh gosh that was not right or that was not right that is not the kind of falling away that this author is talking about which i find incredibly reassuring because otherwise every day i'm falling away the kind of falling away that he's talking about is to stop believing indeed i mean every little sinful act of ours is an act of disbelief, but he is talking about out and out rejection of Jesus and rejection not just of who he is, but of what he's done and the way that these people were in danger of rejecting Jesus was that they were in danger by um, because they were believing that um, his sacrifice was not enough and that they needed to um continue to worship in the temple they needed those sacrifices offered by Levitical priests more than they needed the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ so they were tempted to go back these jewish christians were tempted to go back to the exclusive use of the um of the Old Testament Covenant, the exclusive use of the Old Testament cultists in the temple, the sacrifice of animals, the blood of animals to atone for sin to God. So we're not really sure why, but we think it was probably because, in part, because of persecution. Because towards the end, um, the second half of the first century, and before that even, we see that Christians are being persecuted both by um, those early Christians who were Jews, primarily Jews, were being persecuted by other Jews for believing in Jesus. Um, We see that even with Saul. Remember Paul is persecuting Jewish Christians specifically because he sees that this new fangled um, fashion, religious fashion, is apostate apostate and causes people to go um, worship someone else besides the one true God. Um, worship, because they were indeed worshiping Jesus Christ. Um, But little did he know, he would soon find out, right? So remember, they're tempted to go back. And so... um we see that especially in this passage because we see it, some of the ways that, in which he's talking about um, Jesus' sacrifice. Some of the ways in which he's exhorting them, um, it makes it sound as though he's saying once again, showing them, you can't go back now because you have this one perfect sacrifice offered for you in Jesus Christ. So don't go back because it won't it won't be it won't be enough. Um, so let's look right at chapter 10, verse 19, which I put 19 through 22. And I'm covering three chapters today, which is pretty much a lot. So I'm basically going at 10,000 feet. You know, we're going to see, oh, there's that little speck down there on the ground. Well, we're flying right past it. Um, but looking at chapter 10, it begins with, in chapter 10, verse 19, that passage I put there. Um, let, I'll just read it. Uh, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So there's this, therefore... Remember in English writing classes you would write those papers and you would have, you know, you'd have a thesis statement at the beginning and then you would write all this stuff and prove your thesis statement. At the end, in your concluding paragraph, wouldn't you often say, therefore? Well, this is his conclusion. This is the beginning of his conclusion, and everything that precedes it, we'll have another therefore later on, but everything that precedes it is what he is alluding to. Therefore, because of all this that's gone on before, because of his entire argument, and not only that, but because of this most, um, this high point of his argument, of Jesus as the um, the one, the, the, the perfect sacrifice once and for all to take care of human sin. Because of Jesus' death and sacrifice, he even says, since we have confidence we have confidence to enter the holy places, this is the most holy place in the tabernacle but he's really talking about the real most holy place in heaven not the earthly most holy place since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus that it is the sacrifice of Jesus' own flesh that um, that then allows that curtain to be drawn back so that um, our human sin is atoned for it is no longer um, there we are washed and cleansed from it we are free from it and then we can enter into the presence of a holy god it's interesting to think about atonement we are saved and we um we focus on the salvation piece knowing that we are saved through jesus christ and this is a good thing because it's the remembrance of this and the refocusing the lens on this truth again and again that bring, gives us the right motivation for the what then. It gives us that knowledge that um, there's nothing we can do that can take us out of God's love for us. It is that knowledge of our assurance, um, our assurance of salvation through Jesus Christ that then allows us to draw near to God without fear, with confidence, as it says here, um, that then also allows us to look around the world and to um, to be freed to love and serve other people. Um, in Jesus' name without that sense of um, fear that if we don't do it perfectly, um, God is going to somehow be angry with us. We know that our sins are forgiven. So even if we um, mess up as we go forward, as we um, step out in faith to one another, to um, love one another, that then um, because of God's salvation through Jesus Christ, we know that even if we fail, um, we're still loved by God. Nothing can take us from the love of God, and so that gives us the confidence and um, to draw near to God, and then also to step out in faith in action, in loving each other in word in words and deeds, and not just in. Um, And so that horizontal component of our faith, that um, love your neighbor as yourself, that is then um, made possible and motivated by the gift that we've received from God. So therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, our confidence comes from Jesus Christ and from his death, we enter in through the curtain, into God's presence through Jesus' flesh, as though Jesus' flesh is that very way, that road, um, that path into God, um, because it is by his death that we are able to enter in. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. What does that remind you of, the heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience? It does. Well, we also, I mean, we sprinkle in baptism or we kind of pour, but um, in some traditions do sprinkle. So there's that definitely is suggested with the bodies washed with pure water, right? We definitely have that in baptism. But I think that what's being looked at here are two separate things, but that are both kind of combined as we enter into faith, through faith, that the blood sprinkled, and this in the Old Testament, the blood was sprinkled, um, at the ratification of the covenant the first covenant the blood of um, the animals that were sacrificed there at the ratifying of the covenant with Abraham and then with Moses that, that blood was sprinkled on the people So did they dip the I don't I don't remember exactly how it was done but it was it was yeah like which I I'm so bad I think about it and I think well then all their clothing was stained yeah, Don't you think about that? I think about that like well thanks a lot now I've got to go to launder everything but um I guess that was just part of. Anyway, so there. Email saying, Be aware. <laughs> yeah, we, well, we only sprinkle with water if we ever do anything like that. But, but so there's that idea that it's Jesus' own blood that is sprinkled on us, that covers us, and that cleans our consciences, cleanses our consciences, consciences so that we are no longer afraid. We're no longer fearful before God. We come into His presence. Um, and then our bodies are washed with pure water, we are baptized. Um, and, you know, there's an idea, too, that that baptism is through his blood we are baptized, through his death we are baptized, through the water um, that signifies the Holy Spirit we are baptized. Um, so, therefore, proceeds not just this let us, remember I was talking about the salad, you always know the salad is the um, exhortation, what now? Um, let us, this let us, let us draw near, so we're drawing near, and then there's another one, let us hold fast the confession Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So there's that idea of holding on to the truth. Um, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. There's that horizontal component. Um, And then at the very end, it goes on, this exhortation goes on, continues for these um, verses and talks about basically from verses 26 on through the end of chapter 10, talks about how, um, soberly, um, transgressions in the Old Testament were treated, deliberate sin, and talking here about deliberate sin. And he's exhorting them not to sin deliberately. And he's not just speaking about sinful actions here, he's talking about apostasy, about turning away from Jesus and denying what it is that Jesus has done for us. So he's specifically telling those first century Jewish Christians, if you go back to those sacrifices in the temple, you are denying Jesus Christ and what it is that he has done for you don't go back Um, and he's exhorting them, he's warning them against that apostasy. But it's amazing, his rhetoric is amazing because he's warning them and then um, he looks to the future at the end, he looks to the future of um, the, what is coming. He says, um, uh, because the day is coming, um, the day is drawing, more, drawing near. This is in verse 25. Don't neglect to meet together, um, but encourage one another. And all the more as the day is drawing near. And then this warning. So you have this sense of this future coming, that Jesus is coming back. And 10 verses later in 37, for yet, he quotes the Old Testament, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So what you see here is that he is closing up this idea of um, shrinking back, he's uh, putting in opposition that idea that he brings in at the beginning of the passage in, um, uh, of this highlighted part in this long verse let us draw near on the one hand he's saying let us draw near and then at the end of all these verses don't shrink back but he's not just telling them don't shrink back but he's rather drawing them in and saying but you wouldn't do that anyway don't do this but you wouldn't do that anyway so why am I even bothering to tell you of course I don't, I don't even need to tell you Which is a rhetoric, right? He's drawing them in, even though they're in danger of shrinking back. He's saying, oh, but you wouldn't do that anyway. He's um, imputing to them um, more righteousness than is theirs, um, which he does for us, or God does for us as well. My righteous one shall live by faith, and he won't shrink. He says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So he's putting that drawing near and shrinking back. He also does the same thing as you'll see on my sheet with having confidence and throwing away your confidence. He talks the same word. He talks about it at the beginning of this passage um, that we have confidence in verse 19, which you have on your sheet. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places, and then later on um, in verse 35 he says, therefore do not throw away your confidence. Hold on to your confidence. But you wouldn't do that anyway, right? Because you have faith. So um, this rhetoric is convincing the people not to fall away, not to stop. Not to stop believing in Jesus. Remember, don't stop believing in Jesus. And he talks, he mentions this faith faith in verse 39. And this faith is, um, he's introducing this idea of faith because he's going on to talk about it in this great passage from chapter 11, which we all know probably pretty well because we hear this definition of faith so often. Um, This definition of faith in chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Um, What a great definition of faith. The assurance of things hoped for in the future. The conviction of things not seen. And he goes on to say, he's already said, you have faith. Then now he's going to draw out this definition of faith in these examples of Old Testament heroes. And so he has this formula that he uses all throughout chapter 11. By faith. We understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. He talks about visible and invisible things. You'll listen listen for it as I read these ones. I haven't put them on your sheet, but this formula is there. He introduces every single, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. By faith Enoch was taken so that he should not see death. Um, Now before he was taken he was commended as having pleased God and without faith it's impossible to please him. By faith Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. That's a great one because remember God said, "No, there's going to really, no, really, there's going to be a flood," and Noah builds this ark. And people think he's crazy for building an ark in the middle of the land, dry land. Um, and then, but he has faith that God, in God's word, that what God has told him to do will come to, is because of what will come to pass in the future. Um, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, um, whose designer and builder is God. He lived in tents his whole life because he believed the word that God said to him that he would inherit, his descendants would inherit that land. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age. Um, these all, and they, So he talks about this seeing, this um, acting on the promises of God before you see the reality, before you know for sure, um, with your eyes, before you see the promise enacted and realized. And he goes on to say that they all died in faith not having seen the realization of their hope because essentially their hope was in God who promised and yet they didn't even know the end of the promises, that God's promises would all be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So he goes on, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. Uh, seeing from afar and pressing on. He is encouraging these people, remember, who are about to fall away, to press on by this example of all of these great heroes of faith who pressed on and persevered even though they didn't see the realization of God's promises in their lives in the way that they might have expected. He goes on, by faith Moses, by faith the people, by faith um, Moses left Egypt, by faith the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days, by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, by faith, um, he just keeps going on, it would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets. Um, And then he goes on to describe all these things that these great heroes of the faith did. And some of these things, I have to wonder if these might have been the kind of persecutions that the Jewish Christians were facing. He is specifically enumerating some of the things that happened to the prophets and the heroes of the Old Testament in order to encourage them to hold fast in spite of oncoming persecution. They, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Those three, in particular, were different ways that those early church martyrs, the first Christians, were martyred. Um, They were thrown to the lions. They were burned. They were killed by the sword, Um, just as these Old Testament heroes Remember, Daniel stopped the mouths of lions. Um, others quenched the power of fire. They escaped the, the edge of the sword. He's giving them these examples of those who by faith so that they might have a vision of what it would look like for them to persevere. And he ends all of this. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. They still did not see the realization of the promises because they did not live to see Jesus Christ. And yet they are made perfect in and through him just as we are. And that making perfect talks about our justification and eventually our sanctification, our making hope, being made holy in him. Any thoughts about that? I have an idea and illustration that I'll share with you in a minute, but any thoughts about that? I just took you on a whirlwind tour through this long chapter in Hebrews, um, this beautiful passage on faith. It is a hymn, an ode to faith, and what it looks like to um, hope in the future and to take action in the present as if the future were a reality. Any thoughts on that or questions? Anything you wanna share? Well, okay, so how many of you have seen Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade? (laughs) Do you know what I'm thinking of? Well, see, I, I can only, whenever I've thought about this passage, forgive me, Lord, if this is blasphemous, but I've thought about, remember at the end, when Indiana is like they're in. Uh, has he made it into the Temple of Doom already? And there are these tests put before him before he can get to the grail and the Nazis are like right behind him trying to get in as well and he has to go and get the grail because his father has been wounded. It's only to drink from the grail will heal his father um, and he comes to this chasm and he has to cross the chasm and um, he has to Step out over the chasm, remember, and the stone appears. There's some trick to it, too. I think he has to answer a riddle or something for each step. Is that right? There's a riddle for each step. I have a hard time remembering. It's an earlier test. <laughs> <laughs> it's an earlier test? Oh, it is an earlier test with the questions. How does he know? Does he just step, stick his foot he out? Steps, yeah. He just steps, steps out. Then, they, then he can see it once, he once, he's, once he's put his weight out on it, right. once it's too late, if it's the wrong yeah, thing. He if it hadn't been there. It made an impression, even if I don't remember the exact particulars of it, it's worth seeing again because it's just that great image, what a great image of faith, of taking a step out into the unknown, over the chasm, over the brink, tr- trusting somehow that there's going to be a step in front of you, and then taking another step, trusting somehow. And these steps are invisible. He looks back and he can see them, and that's how the Nazis get over but because they can now see him too, because he took the steps of faith. But that idea of taking a step out in faith, over a chasm where you don't see the steps, you don't see the stones placed in front of you, but you're stepping out in faith. Essentially, that is what the author to the Hebrews is talking about. That is the kind of faith that he is calling upon the first century Christians to have. And that's the kind of faith that he is calling upon us to have. Because if you think about it, our faith, um, to to trust that God has made us righteous through Jesus Christ and that there is nothing else in this wor- world worth following, worth believing in, worth giving our time to worth um, worth striving for um, then the, that is essentially it he's saying don't stop believing because there is nothing else that is worth living for and worth striving for Yes written after Paul and Peter or- It's hard to tell. We don't have an exact date for it. I'm trying to remember because Paul and Peter um, were earlier. It probably is. It's pre 70 AD. We know that it was written before 70 AD because the temple is still in existence. Do you remember the exact dates for Peter and Paul's deaths? I seem to remember early to mid 60s. Yeah, I think I remember that too. I'm not very good with dates, but the quintessential one is the destruction of the temple. It might be that they have died already. It might not be, though, because it almost looks as though they'd experienced persecution in the past, and he talks about that. Remember back when you were persecuted before, you willingly endured the, per- the confiscation of your property. Well, um, more is coming, he's saying, and that you can look forward to it with joy and endurance um, because of what Jesus has done for you. But that, I don't think that they had experienced the persecution but that's just my take on it you know I don't know um, that there's an official answer because we just don't know enough about it or about the timeline to know but I don't think they would have um, known for sure I don't think they're in Rome though also I think they're probably somewhere I think they're further I think they're further in closer to Jerusalem because they're so obsessed with the with the temple and the temple still ex- in existence so I think that they're probably closer geographically to Jerusalem than to Rome both Peter and and Paul were martyred in Rome. But the martyrdom is still a real possibility. Um, So um, looking at that, he then... Okay, because of this faith, because of this faith that they're called to have, he continues in this exhortation, this um, speech of encouragement, and he says, these are some of my favorite verses in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He tells us the gospel again here, right? And he also says we're surrounded, all those great heroes of the faith that he mentioned in chapter 11, it's as though we are in an arena or in a stadium running our race, which is our earthly life, Running our way, our race, and there are these spectators all around us. Um, we can't see them, but they can see us, almost like in, you know. I you know my theater background, right? And that when you're on stage, and there's a proscenium stage, which means a regular box stage, and all the seats out there, are kind of like this is actually proscenium style seating. Um, that if I was acting on stage. There would be a fourth wall right here. It's called the invisible fourth wall so that I could look out here and I wouldn't see any. You would, it would be really weird if I just looked right at Joe and Joe saw me looking at him and it was like, whoa, she's looking right at me. Um, and that's almost like this idea of the saints in heaven, that they can see us, we cannot see them, our lives are lived out here, um, and yet they're watching in, and they're not just watching us, but they're cheering us on, and encouraging us, and saying, go for it, <laughs> you can do it, <laughs> run this race, um, because their race is over, and they have seen the promises fulfilled, um, they know the end now, and so it's as though they're cheering us on. And I think of that even not just with these great heroes of the faith, but with um, those loved ones, um, friends of mine that have died in the faith, that I know are with Jesus, that they are cheering on this earthly life of mine. That um, And then, then to look at this life as a race, um, it's not about a competition. It's just about finishing. You know, I, I can't imagine running marathons, but it's not so much about our placing, it's about getting it's getting done, just finishing it, and finishing well. And, these, um, and that was what these early Christians were faced with, that their race might end. Um, their trial, um, that idea of an athletic contest, being something that doesn't feel so great physically, um, that requires perseverance and stamina, and a vision for the end, um, to carry you through. That's a kind of race. That's why he likens the Christian life to a race, particularly when faced with trials um, and suffering, whether it's because of persecution or because of our own sin. Our sin has consequences, and though we're forgiven, sometimes we experience the consequences of our sin. Um, the sin that clings so closely, we're called to lay it aside. Um, so don't let sin trip you up in this life of faith. Um, Also to lay aside every weight, anything that could come between you and God, anything that would weigh you down, whether it's um, an unhealed grief, um, unforgiveness, um, a a physical ailment, or um, a, a wrong that has never been made right. Um, Those kind of things are not necessarily sinful, but they are suffering different burdens that we can carry um, without meaning to, that will weigh us down, that shouldn't weigh us down, that God does not desire for us to carry. And the whole way that we run this race is by looking at Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And he's talking here about endurance for the people of God. He's telling them to look to Jesus Who has loved them so much that he would suffer to the utmost on their behalf, on our behalf? And that um, the joy, what is the joy that is set before Jesus when he ran his race, when he finished his race and said, It is finished on the cross? Why would he do that? What was the joy that he was looking forward to? Any ideas? What? Back to heaven, returned to fellowship with the Father. But because of his death and his atoning sacrifice, who would be able to be in fellowship with him and the Father once again? Sinners, human beings, fallen men and women, Adam and Eve brought back. Each one of us restored back into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We are brought into that fellowship of the Holy Trinity because of Jesus' death. So not only is the Father the joy, the love of the Father the joy that is set before Jesus, but the prospect of eternity with His redeemed people, with sinners brought back through grace. um, We are the joy that is set before Jesus. He loves us. God loves us. God even smiles at us and has joy for us in His heart. And it is that joy, that prospect of us being fully restored to God that caused Jesus to go through everything he went through. So because of the joy, if we are his joy, he also then is our joy. Looking to Jesus, that is how we endure the trials and the sufferings of this life without falling away, looking to him and looking to his sacrifice Um, So one more thing, one more idea before I close it, and that is that um, this whole idea, the rest of chapter 12 and chapter 13, describe this discipline, this persecution, as um, an act of God's love for us. That um, Sometimes suffering, we don't know why we suffer, but sometimes it might be that we look back and we say, Wow, God was doing that in my life, in the midst of that trial and that difficulty. Well, he talks in chapter 12, um, verses 3 through 11, as that suffering is a kind of discipline, that God loves us, that he would train us in righteousness, that he would test us and try us, um, that we would be changed and transformed into his likeness. He talks then also about these two mountains and the kingdom that cannot be shaken, Um, that um, we would hear the voice of God coming from Mount Sinai, um, that we would be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and that out of gratitude for what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, we would offer to God acceptable worship. This is at the end of chapter 12, verse 28. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Then he goes on to describe in chapter 13 what, these, what this acceptable worship is. That um, The ethical behavior described in chapter 13, brotherly love, hospitality, um, remembering those in prison, um, holding marriage in honor and um, letting it be undefiled, um, keeping your life free from the love of money, being content with what you have, remembering your leaders and imitating them, not being led away by diverse and strange teachings, all of these things, these ethical exhortations are grounded in that understanding of them being um, as we do them um, it is through faith in Jesus Christ that we we do them, that it, that it's in knowledge that our salvation is secure with him and then that it's out of gratitude for what God has done for us it is really just a response and as a response it's described as an acceptable sacrifice, a sacrifice pleasing to God let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. How funny that that worship described there is not the songs we sing, which is what we think of when we think of worship, or the prayers that we pray, but rather um, the way we live out our love, the love that God has for us um, that we then offer back to God in thanksgiving for what he's done through Jesus Christ. Um, So... um, In the last exhortation, one of the last salient exhortations in the book, is this idea of going out to Jesus, outside the camp. That Jesus suffered outside the camp. And I think here is this idea of even enduring the reproach that Jesus endured. Being um, persecuted because of Jesus' name, through faith in him, allowing yourself to be called by his name, being derided by others, that that also is an act of worship out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. So he ends his book reminding them of everything that God has done for them and saying, can we not, let us now um, out of gratitude even suffer to the utmost um, in thanksgiving for what he's done for us with joy, even we can do this because of what he's done. And the way, if you were to read it at home, you would see the way that it reads is like it reminds me of um, a famous speech from Henry V in um, that great Shakespeare play. Henry V is encouraging. And leading this raw, raw speech, that's the St Crispin's Day speech right before the famous Battle of Agincourt in Henry V. And um, the king says to his men, they're terribly outnumbered." And the king tells the soldiers um, that they have to fight um, and that they have just enough men to make history. He's encouraging them onward into battle. And that is essentially what this whole book is like. It's like this one big speech before battle. That, um, that though they might experience hardship, persecution, they will be great because Jesus is great and has done great things on their behalf. Um, so he says, um, he just says these amazing things. I, I want to read just one thing um, from this St. Crispin's Day speech. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves a curse they were not here and hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's day. That rhetoric of encouragement that by the end of it leads into this rah, rah, now we're going out. um, That is exactly the way the book of Hebrews ends. Um, All of this that God has done for us, now let us go and um, love him right back. So go in peace love and serve the Lord. Thanks be Thanks be God. You.